Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am excited to have with me today Mike Hofkamp again, who I'll introduce and talk to in a second. First, I wanted to say that, since I have a moment here up front, if you are interested in a really fascinating book that does delve actually into both medicine and science in a variety of ways, I am currently reading Michael Lewis's book called The Undoing Project. It is the story of the friendship and the work of Amos Tversky and uh, Daniel Kahneman. They are both very famous psychologists, and they did a lot of the foundational work on heuristics and the way that the human mind makes mistakes and why. It is uh, also covered in many ways in, in Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is another fantastic book that I highly recommend, but really interesting, does a lot of dealing with the way that people uh, sh- make shortcuts in their brain so that they can uh, deal with a lot of information quickly, but those shortcuts can cause us to make mistakes. We tend to estimate things incorrectly. We tend to get anchored by a prior number. This is, for example, why if you are initially told that a house is worth a million dollars, you are more likely to pay more for it than if you were initially told it was worth $700,000 because you're anchored at that initial level. And even if you go in thinking about a certain amount you're going to pay for it, you're going to be affected by that anchoring uh, dynamic. They also did the work that's foundational and why we now know, and I was even taught in medical school, that if you tell a patient that a certain procedure or certain surgery, if they have it, will have a 10% chance of death, 
they're much less likely to decide to do it than if you tell them it has a 90% chance of survival. And so even though that's the exact same thing, the way you phrase that will greatly affect the way people respond and the choices they make. And so there's all of these really interesting things. I can't recommend the book more. Uh, Michael Lewis, of course, is a fantastic writer and has written other books like Moneyball that have become very popular. Uh, I think everything he's written has been really, really interesting. So check it out, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, uh, as well as Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. All right, folks, let's get on with the main show. I'm thrilled to have back with me today Dr. Mike Hofkamp who is, as you probably remember, Clinical Associate Professor at Texas A&M University Health Sciences Center College of Medicine and the Director of Obstetric Anesthesia at Scott & White Medical Center Temple. And we had an overview last time of some uh, maternal physiology, and now today we're going to get into a little more of a sub-area uh, of OB anesthesia, and we're going to talk about obstetric pharmacology and fetal assessment. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Jed. So the way I think we can approach this, let's t we'll spend a, a bunch of time on pharmacology, and then we'll also look at some issues of fetal assessment. So what do you think? Why don't we start with pharmacology and uh, go from there? Okay. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is our inhalational agents that we use in the operating room. Now, obviously, the inhalational agents are going to be rapidly transferred across the placenta of the fetus, and inhalational agents have been associated with lower APGAR scores, particularly when you have longer induction to delivery times. So the key point to remember for inhalational agents is that you want to minimize them when you're having to perform a C-section or general anesthesia, and you don't want to start your C-section until the obstetricians are scrubbed with knives and hands ready to cut. Okay. Now, what about the effect of inhalational agents on the uterine tone? Okay, well, inhalational agents on the uterine tone will, um, will relax the uterus, and sometimes this is advantageous when you have a situation where the uterus needs to be relaxed, like in uterine, uterine uh, inversion or if you really need to get a fetus out. But um, this is obviously problematic when you're trying to get the uterus to contract after uh, the baby's out. I won't steal the thunder from a later lecture of uh, our C-section anesthesia, but in general, inhalational agents will relax the uterus. Okay. How about other anesthetic drugs? So nitrous oxide is the other drug we'll use during general anesthesia, and sometimes just for supplemental analgesia during a C-section. And this can cause diffusion hypoxia in the infant. So any neonate that is exposed to nitrous oxide prior to delivery should have supplemental oxygen immediately after delivery. Okay. So can you tell me how that happens? So the, the nitrous oxide diffuses into, the obviously, the blood that gets to the fetus, and then what happens that causes that hypoxemia? Well, just, just, like, just like it sounds, the, the nitrous oxide goes across the placenta, goes into the, into, the, uh, into the fetus. The fetus will have some nitrous oxide uh, in its, its bloodstream, in its stores, and when it's delivered, it will, um, it will excrete that nitrous oxide through their lungs. They'll breathe it out, and that crowds out the oxygen in the alveoli, and it could potentially cause hypoxemia. Got it. All right. So we've talked about inhalational agents, including nitrous. What about other anesthetic drugs that we need to think about? 
So benzodiazepines are another drug to think about. Typically, we don't really give benzodiazepines around the time of delivery, but they can be given in very select circumstances. Things to remember that drugs like diazepam is lipophilic and crosses the placenta rapidly. Uh, lorazepam is less lipophilic. And in fact, midazolam, the drug that we're most likely to use in the operating room, is more polarized and crosses the placenta less. So if you make the judgment call that you want to give your laboring patient or your patient in the operating room a benzodiazepine, midazolam, due to its polarity, is probably the best choice. Okay, that's good to know. Now, we should probably point out, as you mentioned earlier, we're making a distinction here between actual C-section uh, anesthesia, which we'll do a separate talk on. And right. what we're talking about now is obstetric pharmacology. So this could be, for example, a woman who's pregnant coming to the operating room for an appendectomy. It doesn't mean we're not, we're not dealing specifically with uh, a pregnant woman having a C-section. That's, very, that's correct. Thank you for making that point. All right, great. So we talked about uh, benzos. Anything else? How about propofol? Um, let's see here. So let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, opioids. Okay. Let's start with opioids. So opioids, um, the is associated with neonatal nervous system and respiratory depression. We don't usually give meparidine as a pure analgesic. We usually give it for, for shivering, but it's useful to remember that if you're going to give meparidine to the pregnant patient, they're going to, it's going to be associated with these bad things. Morphine and fentanyl rapidly cross the placenta. Uh, Remifentanyl, because of its ester group, is rapidly metabolized, and it is an ideal drug for uh, to give an induction for a C-section. And there are mixed opioid agonist antagonists like butorphanol and nalbufone. I'm sorry, nalbufine, that are given for laboring patients. So. Okay. So remifentanil is, is, sounds like it's very safe, and that makes sense because of, of the short uh, half-life. Um, if you do give a longer-acting narcotic, uh, anything from fentanyl or even more longer-acting Dilaudid or, or morphine, uh, mm -hmm. the, res, the downside would be potentially respiratory depression in the neonate if, this was, uh, if a, a baby were actually going to be born, right? Are there downsides in a woman who's, let's say, 30 weeks pregnant having an appendectomy? Um, I wouldn't think so. I think that all these uh, bad effects from morphine and other drugs are only going to be realized if the, the fetus is delivered with those drugs on board. Okay, great. So they do cross uh, to the fetus, but temporary effects that, that aren't long-lasting. Correct. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Let's. I'll get back to your propofol question. So, sure. So propofol, obviously, um, is lipophilic. It can across the placenta. Interestingly enough, a, a historical tidbit is APGAR scores are higher in thiopental inductions compared to propofol inductions. That's kind of a mood point now that thiopental isn't commercially available. But uh, for C-section anesthetics, obviously propofol is going to cross placenta. It's going to have some effect on the fetus. The volatile is probably going to have just as much effect uh, for as far as non-C-section anesthetics, the, just like the opioids we talked about, the effects of propofol are going to be short-lived and not realized unless the, the fetus is delivered with the propofol in its bloodstream. Great. Now, how about very early in pregnancy, my first trimester, for example, 
Mm-hmm. Is there a worry at all about any teratogenic effects of any of these propofol, benzos? Uh, would you avoid them in a woman having a, a non-related surgery but who happened to be pregnant? So with, with midazolam, that is a, a theoretical risk of teratogenicity. So we do avoid midazolam in the first and second trimesters. And we really try to avoid it throughout. But it's reasonable to give midazolam to a woman who is I think past the the stage of organogenesis if it's made uh, in a in a thoughtful way. Okay, and then the other thing that comes to mind is that isn't an anesthetic drug per se, but that we might give would be what about painkillers like NSAIDs? Well, with with NSAIDs, uh, those, to my knowledge, don't have any teratogenic effects. But they do have some implications for patients uh, towards term delivery who have heart problems, uh, particularly with patients who um, have need a patent ductus arteriosus to maintain oxygenation with a, with an alter, with a congenital heart lesion. So I would probably avoid NSAIDs unless I really had good evidence that the, the fetuses circulation was normal. All right, great. And as far as I know, no no issues with Tylenol, is that right? No, no no issues at all with Tylenol, not for the fetus at least. Okay. I know there is some um, data out there, though I, I don't think it's very definitive at all, about the potential connection of Tylenol use in, in pregnant women and later development of asthma in children, but I certainly don't think it's been established to the point where anybody's recommending against using Tylenol while pregnant. Yeah, I mean, like that's um, that's a theoretical concern, but uh, in in my practice, uh, I think that Tylenol is is a very reasonable drug that we give all the time to pregnant people. Great. Anything else uh, in the anesthetic drug category? Anything that we should be thinking about? Well, local anesthetics. We can talk about that just for a moment. Sure. Uh, so, obviously, um, pregnant patients are going to be more sensitive to the effects of local anesthetics, like we talked about before in the internal physiology lecture. Um, one of the interesting things about pregnancy is that it can lead to decreased uh, alpha-1 acid glycoprotein levels, which results in a higher concentration of free lidocaine. So I give a bolus of lidocaine to a non-pregnant patient. They have normal alpha-1 acid glycoprotein levels, a bunch of that lidocaine gets sucked up, if you will, by that protein. And pregnant people, it's less so. So you're going to have each dose of lidocaine you get is going to be more potent. Okay. It's good to know. So do uh, you down uh, regulate or do you decrease the amount of lidocaine you give just pre-induction to a woman who's pregnant? Uh, you know, um, it's not not necessarily. I'll, I'll dose it still one milligram per kilogram, uh, and I haven't had any any real problems. As far as dosing up an epidural with lidocaine, the the epidural space is is such a nebulous space that I don't think that this alpha one glycoprotein deal has anything to do with with how that's going to be how that's going to turn out. But it is kind of a tidbit that the board might test you on. Okay, good to know. All right. Anything else before we move on? 
Uh, no, I think we can move on to uh, the next topic, oxytoxic drugs. Yeah, so tell me, what does that mean? What's an oxytoxic drug? Oxytoxic drug is a drug that can cause the, the uterus to contract. That's how we think of it in obstetric anesthesia. Uh, it's produced by the, the, uh, the hypothalamus, and it can also be given exogenously as, as a drug. And we use it in obstetrics to induce labor and to make the uterus contract after delivery to stop blood loss. And this is Pitocin, is that right? Correct. This, the Pitocin is the trade name. Okay. But the generic name is Oxytocin. Great. And the interesting thing about oxytocin is that on the labor and delivery unit, it's dosed by protocol. So the obstetric staff will write an order for an oxytocin infusion, and the nurses will follow a standardized protocol. And so they're not calling the obstetric staff or residents every single five minutes to figure out whether they need to go up or down. One of the interesting things on the labor and delivery unit in particular, in particular is that if you give too much oxytocin, you can get uterine hyperstimulation. Mm-hmm. This is where the uterus can contract so forcefully and frequently that fetal blood flow is interrupted. And so when you have uterine hyperstimulation, you really have to, number one, stop the oxytocin infusion, and two, possibly even consider giving a drug like terbutaline to stop the, uh, to stop the contractions. And terbutaline is a beta agonist, is that right? Terbutaline is a beta agonist. And it can also, here's the, the one thing you should probably remember about terbutaline if you're going to be taking the board exam. It can cause pulmonary edema. That seems to be one of the favorite things they ask about terbutaline. Yep. So terbutaline equals pulmonary edema. All right. it, can also, it can also cause hyperglycemia and hypokalemia as it is a beta agonist. Okay, so those are key side effects to know. It's a uterine relaxant, as you said, and so if you get into hyperstimulation from oxytocin, it's a, essentially an antidote for that. Yes, and um, uh, let me talk about methyl ergonavine. So this is a drug that causes the uterus to contract a lot, and this, is, this drug is reserved uh, for the use of, of uh, pretty significant postpartum hemorrhage. And it should never be given IV because that could cause some really, really bad effects. It's always given IM. And it is contraindicated in preeclampsia. So if someone has gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, methyl ergonavine has been associated with intracerebral hemorrhage. So you want to avoid methyl ergonavine in patients who... Uh, who have that those conditions? And this is the medication that's often referred to as methogen. Correct. That's the uh, yes. Okay. So uh, as you said, used to control postpartum hemorrhage in the sense that it's going to cause contraction of the uterus and therefore squeezing down on those blood vessels, but should be given IM only and has the side effect of hypertension, which you wouldn't want in someone with preeclampsia. That's correct. So another drug that we can use to cause the use to contract are uh, prostaglandins. And uh, the trade name for the drug that we use in the operating room is hemabate. Now, this is a good drug for someone who has preeclampsia, but it's a bad drug for someone who's got asthma because it can cause bronchoconstriction. So someone has asthma, do not give them uh, hemabate. 
Now, I remember that sometimes they ask a question where they want, where the answer is hemabate, but they don't tell you the name hemabate. They give you the, and you're going to have to remind me, but I think it's something like 5-methyl something or other, right? That's prostaglandin F2-alpha, I believe. Prostaglandin F2-alpha, okay, not 5-methyl. I was wrong there, but it was an F2-alpha was what I was thinking of. So prostaglandin F2-alpha, they may have that as an answer choice. So you have mm-hmm. to recognize that hemabate is, is no error, that prostaglandin F2-alpha is known as hemabate. Yeah. All right, so those are two drugs often present in the operating room for a C-section to to control postpartum hemorrhage, or could be for, for after a regular delivery, um, that you would have available. You mentioned the important side effects, uh, the contraindications, methogen contraindicated for preeclampsia, hemabate contraindicated in asthmatics. Yes. All right. Are there other tocolytic drugs that we should talk about? So let's talk about the magnesium sulfate. Okay. So that can be used as a tocolytic. It's usually used... As, um, as a preeclamptic drug to prevent seizures, but it can be used as a tocolytic. One of the things to remember about magnesium sulfate is it can potentiate the effects of non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. Yep. And so if you have a patient who is on mag and you give them a non-depolarizer such as rocuronium or vecuronium, you can expect that they are going to be exquisitely sensitive to that and it's going to be harder to reverse neuromuscular blockade. All right. That's important. That's asked a lot. Another interesting thing about magnesium sulfate that's asked a lot is that it reduces the minimum alveolar concentration. Right. So it decreases MAC, increases the action of non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. The other thing that's asked about MAG a fair amount are the levels of MAG at which you start to see side effects. Yes. And so... Um, you got to monitor the patients for signs of toxicity. And so you'll see the obstetricians out with their reflex hammers, and that's one of the first things to, to go is, uh, is the deep tendon reflexes. Now, later on, you're going to see, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're gonna see um, respiratory depression very late. You're going to see altered mental status very late. And uh, you really definitely want to monitor for for uh, those things. And uh, going to the lab is going to take too long. You really want to be able to identify these things at the bedside. Right. Now, I, I, so again, you're right. The levels they may ask you about, and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you start to um, get a depression of of uh, deep tendon reflexes in the five to eight category and then respiratory depression in the kind of 10 to 15 category, cardiac depression in the 15 to 20. Is that right? Yeah, that's roughly correct. And the, the therapeutic range for magnesium sulfate is around four to eight milligrams per deciliter. So if you're getting loss of deep tendon reflexes, that's actually a, uh, a reassuring sign that you've got enough mag on board. But mm-hmm. if you're starting to get the other bad things, then that's a sign that you've gone a little bit too far. Okay. So magnesium, uh, both for tocolysis, which I guess we should just define as trying to stop contractions. So this might be someone in preterm labor. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you ever use magnesium to treat uterine hyperstimulation from oxytocin? Uh, typically not. Typically we'll use tributylene. Okay. 
It's uh, a little bit quicker and has a different mechanism of action that's more amenable to stopping the, the contractions. All right. So the most common use of magnesium in a pregnant woman would be treating someone who is preeclamptic. And then the, uh, it's also used, as you said, for um, tocolysis. And I believe, and I'm stretching here, but that there is some data in the obstetric literature for magnesium as a neuroprotective agent. It is. It is. It's, it, you're absolutely right. So it's neuroprotective for the preterm fetus. And so when magnesium sulfate is given for the indication of uh, preterm labor, it can be stopped immediately after delivery. So uh, it's important to make that distinction with the obstetrical, the obstetric staff because uh, if a patient is on magnesium sulfate for preeclampsia, they have to get it long after delivery. But if it's for preterm labor and it's neuroprotection, you can stop that Right, or you should, you, and you absolutely should stop it right after delivery, so the mother doesn't have any effects from that. Right. Clearly, once the baby's out, there's no advantage to the baby to continue giving it to the mother. Correct. All right. Are there other medications in terms of tocolytics that we should talk about? Just briefly, uh, calcium channel blockers too, like nifedipine, can be used as a tocolytic. Okay. What about? Okay. Let's. Yeah. I'm sorry. No. No. Go ahead. Let's move on to anti-seizure drugs, because yep. these drugs are sometimes given, and they have implications for pregnant patients. So phenytoin is an anticonvulsant. It's a very effective anticonvulsant, but it's also a competitive inhibitor of vitamin K. And so we really, really want to avoid giving phenytoin during organogenesis in the first trimester. And you can get two things with this. You can get fetal anticonvulsant syndrome, which is orofacial, cardiovascular, and digital abnormalities, and this carries a 2 to 5% risk of major anomalies when you're using phenytoin. And you could also get, uh, if you don't get the big, bad fetal anticonvulsant syndrome, you can get a minor syndrome called fetal hydantoin syndrome, which has more minor abnormalities. And people who are taking phenytoin have a 10% chance of developing this. Okay. So is it safe after the first trimester? Well, I, I think that it's safer, but I don't believe that people would want to give you would want to give uh, phenytoin unless it was really, really decided upon as a multidisciplinary uh, decision. One thing I've learned in, in in the real world practice is that even if something is a really bad drug during pregnancy, it can be given sometimes if a multidisciplinary decision is made. But for board purposes, I would consider phenytoin to be a drug that you just don't give during pregnancy. Okay, great. How about other, are there other anti-seizure medications that we need Yeah, carbamazepine is one. It can treat all the seizure sores except petite mal epilepsy. Uh, but you do get um, craniofacial defects, fingernail hypoplasia, and developmental delay. It's also associated with spina bifida. So you want to avoid carbamazepine during pregnancy too. Okay. Uh, phenobarbital can be uh, is used for partial adrenalized time clock seizures, and you can also have bad side effects with this as well. And um, valproic acid is another one that you have a risk of one to two percent of spina bifida in infants, and you can get a fetal valproate syndrome with epicanth epicanthal folds, shallow orbits, and low set ears. 
So none of these sound good. Are there any? Yeah. Are there any anti-seizure medications that are safer during pregnancy? You know, not not to my knowledge. So essentially, it's a risk-benefit analysis. Someone who's pregnant with a bad enough seizure disorder may have to be on these, and then you're you're just running the risk of the fetal abnormalities. Uh, But you have to kind of, as you said, get a multidisciplinary panel together and make a decision. Obviously, along with the most important member of the team would be the mother herself and deciding what uh, is best for for her health. Yes. So real briefly, let's talk about mechanisms of placental transfer. Great. So, so um, in general, there are drugs that cross the placenta and there are drugs that don't cross the placenta. So drugs that don't cross the placenta tend to be ionized, polarized, and not amenable to crossing membranes, like drugs like lycopyrrolate, heparin, succinylcholine, non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. These are drugs that do not cross the placenta. In contrast, drugs that do cross the placenta, anything that crosses the blood-brain barrier is going to cross the placenta too, like drugs like atropine, scopolamine, diazepam, midazolam, propofol, thiopental, halothane, isoflurane. These drugs are going to cross the placenta and have an effect on the fetus. Also, um, it depends, also there's a relationship between the size of the drug and how easily it's going to cross the placenta. So, uh, a drug that's less than 1,000 Daltons is going to have increased transfer. A drug that's more than 1,000 Daltons is not. Uh, a drug that has a high proportion of unionized drug in maternal plasma is going to cross easier than a drug that has a higher proportion. And there are some drugs that have transporter proteins on the placenta that will help transport across. And if a drug uh, doesn't have these these uh, proteins, uh, it's uh, it's not going to be as transferred as much. And along those lines, there's something called ion trapping. And so ion trapping is something that's tested quite frequently. What happens is that you have an unionized drug on the maternal side, and due to a concentration gradient, it will cross the placenta. And once it crosses the placenta, the placenta tends to be more of an acidic environment. And so if you have a pKa that's closer to that's close to 7.4 which is the physiologic uh, state of plasma that drug when it crosses into the fetal circulation is going to be protonated and thus ionized and it's going to be so-called trapped in the fetus. And so this can happen with uh, this can happen very easily with lidocaine. Okay. So you can actually get higher concentrations of lidocaine in the fetus because it'll become, quote-unquote, trapped there. That's correct. And um, and the other thing to think about is protein binding. So protein concentrations and affinity for drugs on both maternal and fetal sides of placenta can influence transfer of the drugs. And it's only the free, unbound portion of the drug that's available for distribution across the placenta. Okay. So are there any specific drugs? Uh, you mentioned lidocaine. Are there any other specific drugs that we use commonly that we should kind of think about or, or avoid due to placental transfer? Well, I think any, any uh, kind of drug that you're using that's an anesthetic, you have to think twice about what's going to happen when it crosses the placenta and, and what context you're giving it. Like, for instance, if we're doing appendectomy, I'm less concerned about placental transfer in the second trimester than I am about if we're going to be doing a C-section and I'm going to have to deliver a fetus in the next five to 10 minutes. Okay. So, so it's all a matter of, uh, of context, I think. Great. 
All right. And then what happens to drugs that get to the fetus? Uh, well, the fetus uh, can metabolize it or the, the mother can metabolize it. Typically, the fetus doesn't do much metabolizing until later on because the fetus has what I would consider to be a dumb liver. Okay. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that during the, the third trimester, the fetus is going to take on an increasing role of metabolizing those drugs, but the mother is still going to have a significant role in, uh, in getting those drugs away from the fetus. Okay. What? Uh, let's, I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Uh, let's talk about the FDA pregnancy categories while we're talking about bad drugs. Great. So sometimes this will be tested. Uh, category A means that there are adequate, I'm sorry, adequate randomized controlled trials in humans that show no risk. And so there are actually not that many drugs there at Category A because you need sound scientific evidence to show that they're Category A. Right. Now, now Category B is that animal studies show no risk. So no human studies, but good animal studies. Or the animal studies show risk, but human studies do not. So if an animal study and a human study is in conflict, or you just have a positive animal study, it's going to be a Category B drug. Okay. So that's A and B, and those are relatively safe in pregnancy to use either one. Correct. A lot of our drugs are Category C drugs, where animal studies show some risk, or there's no data that exists. So I know, for example, um, I think Viagra, I don't know if that has any pregnancy uh, data on it just because there's, there's no reason to, to test it in pregnant patients. But uh, So a lot of your drugs are going to be Category C drugs. Okay. And Category C drug you wouldn't use if you didn't have to, but if you had to use it, it's, it's not, uh, you're not, there's no known human harmful data. Correct. And then the category D, D as in dog, is there's evidence of human risk, but benefits may outweigh the risks. Now, would, what would fit under there? Give me an example. Um, I would say that category D drug might be, um, you know, I don't know. I, I certainly don't want to give you uh, inaccurate information, but I would think that a drug like midazolam might be a category D drug. Okay. Sounds good. And then is there a category beyond D? Yes, category X. And that is what? This is absolutely contraindicated in pregnancy. There is, there is no indication that uh, that drug should be used in pregnancy. So uh, I would consider uh, isoretinoin, that Accutane for acne, that would be a category X drug. Okay. Uh, and similarly, if we look, go back to category D, I would imagine, and I don't know this, but we could check, but I would imagine that the anti-seizure drugs would be category D because you may have someone with a bad enough seizure disorder where they, they need to use one of these, but clearly there's known harm. So, uh, you know, you'd have to make that risk benefit analysis. Yeah, that, 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 that's, uh, that's correct. And then another category X might be warfarin, for example, where you uh, would never really want to use it in pregnancy, and there's other anticoagulancy you could use, so you'd never need to use warfarin. Uh, uh, you know, that, that may be true. Um, I can tell you that I have used warfarin on a pregnant patient with HIT who had a cardiac uh, valve. Okay. And so that was in the third trimester after organogenesis had taken place, and that was a, like I said, a multidisciplinary decision. So, okay, so maybe that's so, more of a D than an X. Uh, 
Yeah, but, but he certainly is an X during the first trimester of pregnancy. Okay, interesting. All right. So, good. Those are the FDA categories. Hey, folks, it's Jed hopping in here. I did just look this up after I finished the interview with Mike, and uh, we were correct that the anti-seizure medications like phenytoin are pregnancy category D. Warfarin is indeed a pregnancy category X, uh, though, as you heard from Mike, there might be a time when you do decide to use it, but in general, X meaning you would hardly ever use it. Or you certainly would never want to use it unless you had, as Mike said, a, a really multidisciplinary board along with the patient thinking about it and making a decision, including talking to your legal uh, representatives as well. All right, let's get back to the interview. So, Mike, one thing we hear a lot about is amniotic fluid. Tell me about amniotic fluid and, and what we need to know about that. So, the amniotic fluid, it's composed of fetal urine, lung fluid, skin, transudate, and water that is filtered across the amniotic membranes. It can also contain electrolytes, proteins, and desquamated fetal cells. Something it sounds like something you'd want to be swimming in, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so a lot of times we'll do amniocentesis, and amniocentesis is sampling of amniotic fluid. And the utility of doing this is that you can measure lecithin, sphingomyelin, uh, and these uh, molecules will are used to assess fetal lung maturity. And so depending on the ratios, you can be reassured that the fetal lung is mature. Uh, you can also identify bacteria with amniocentesis. You can obtain fetal cells for karyotype. And alpha fetal protein levels correlate with neural tube defects. So if you have a high alpha fetal protein level, that's suggestive of a neural tube defect. Now, so when you perform this procedure under ultrasound, the risk of spontaneous abortion is 0.25 to 1%. And the operator will usually use a 20 to 20 gauge needle to do this procedure. So this is what used to be thought of, and there's obviously a lot that goes into this, but people would use this as a way to identify any potential birth defects, especially in older mothers, trisomies, for example, uh, but they'd have to weigh that against that one, up to 1% risk of losing the baby, where there's a little bit of, a, I think, an interesting calculus that happens now because we now have the cell-free DNA maternal blood tests, which can identify trisomies. Have you seen a change in the number of women opting for uh, amniocentesis since those tests have come out? That's a great question. I, I couldn't really answer that. Um, I'm not around when the amniocentesis uh, take place, but um, but I think you're correct that you know talking to my obstetric colleagues, I think there is such a a push for these more non-invasive tests that we don't really do them as often. Okay. Uh, so extending from the and uh, the amniotic fluid. There's a condition called oligohydramnios, which is low amniotic fluid volume. And this can result from uroplacental insufficiency or increased renal artery resistance. And one of the problems of oligohydramnios is that it may predispose to umbilical cord compression, which can lead to intermittent fetal hypoxemia. So if you don't have as much amniotic fluid as you need, the cord could get wrapped around the neck or compressed or other bad things can happen to it. And if you are 
post date. So if you are past 40 weeks, you need to be screened twice a week for oligohydramnios. And so you can think of the amniotic fluid, Mike, tell me if this is right, as being kind of like the, the cushioning. And so if there's less cushioning, as you said, you can get more compression of the fetus, the, the cord, et cetera. That's a great way of thinking about it. And oligo, now the, the uh, some at least of the amniotic fluid comes from fetal urination. Is that right? Correct. And so you might get oligohydramnios from, for example, if the fetus didn't have working kidneys. That's correct. Okay. Uh, the opposite of oligohydramnios is polyhydramnios, and this is excess of fluid in the amniotic sac. It, it affects about 1% of pregnancies, and uh, it can be caused by diabetes. And the pathophysiology is that hyperglycemia can lead to fetal polyuria, just like you talked about before. It's mm-hmm. the urine that, that uh, makes up the amniotic fluid. Uh, there are conditions that impair fetal swallowing, uh, like if you have a tracheoesophageal fistula or something that's going to impair the swallowing of amniotic fluid, that could cause polyhydramnios, and you could have maternal renal or cardiac problems that contribute to polyhydramnios. All right, so good. And then what? If, going back for a second to the oligohydramnios, we talked about sort of lack of kidneys or, or not well-functioning kidneys causing it, and I think of it also, but tell me if there are other specifics, it's just kind of a sign of something's not right, uh, but are there mm. other specific causes we should think about? No, for board purposes, I don't. I don't think that you need to go into that much more detail. Okay. Than, uh, than what we have. Okay. Uh, uh, good. So let's move on to antipartum uh, fetal assessment and therapy. Okay. So ultrasonography, you've got transabdominal versus transvaginal. Uh, each one is is uh, used in different settings. Like initially in the first trimester, you're probably going to use a transvaginal ultrasound because it's going to be easier to to locate and visualize the developing embryo uh, or fetus. And then later on, you're going to use transabdominal because the fetus is going to be way up in the chest in some in, uh, when it gets really towards the, the end of term. Uh, one of the problems of ultrasonography are your false positive and false negative findings. Uh, and there's three types of exams for ultrasonography. There's the there's a basic exam, which looks at the, the number of fetuses, like if you've got twins or triplets, the viability, the position, the gestational age, looking just for gross malformations, looking at where the placenta is, whether it's over the os with the previa, looking for amniotic fluid volume and the presence of maternal masses that are independent of the, of the, uh, the fetus. Uh, In contrast, the targeted uh, or comprehensive ultrasonography is you're looking at the fetal structures examined in detail to identify and characterize any fetal malformation. And occasionally, you'll have to have a limited ultrasound uh, that answers a a specific clinical question. Like, for instance, many women get an ultrasound, and the ultrasonographer is a little bit hesitant to rule out cardiac defects completely. So you have to come back to get another ultrasound to see if you can visualize the heart better. And sometimes it's just a matter of where the the fetus lies in the uterus. Sometimes if you come back a different day, you're going to get a different lie and the the fetus is going to be able to reveal 
the cardiac system a little bit better. Okay. Um, getting closer to, to labor, there's fetal heart rate heart rate monitoring. And so animal studies and clinical observation have helped establish a, a rough correlation between fetal heart rate abnormalities and perinatal outcome. It's not perfect, but we use it to uh, detect fetal bradycardia, which is a uh, which is an indication of fetal well-being that is not very good. You can have internal versus external monitoring. The internal is obviously more accurate, but it's more invasive. It's kind of like difference between uh, an arterial line and a non-invasive blood pressure cuff. Okay. And the fetal heart rate is superimposed upon the ear contractions on the monitoring strip, and that's what gets us to the. Um, our decelerations. Yep. And so, early decelerations—that's when the the uh, fetal heart rate starts to decrease and lockstep with the rise of the contraction. That's believed to result from uh, reflex vagal activity due to mild hypoxemia, and these are not ominous. In contrast, late decelerations, which happen after the apex of the contraction, are considered to be non-reassuring and reflective of uroplacental insufficiency. And the third kind of uh, decelerations are the so-called variable decelerations, and those can be due to cord compression. And so like in the patient with oligohydramnios, you're very concerned about variable decelerations because that could be reflective of a compressed cord. Now, along the lines of fetal heart rate abnormalities that you have to look at the overall picture, which is the fetal heart rate variability. And so what you want to see when you're looking at a strip that's uh, taken over 5, 10, 20 minutes is you want to see that heart rate go up and down regularly in cycles because that's a reflection of an intact neurological system and, uh, and also represents fetal well-being. The last thing you want to see is railroad tracks, where the strip is just completely flat over a long period of time. That is a very non-reassuring strip, and your fetus is probably in a little bit of trouble if you see that. Now, if there's reduced variability for a temporary period of time, it could be that the fetus is asleep. Is that right? And so uh, if you then see the fetus wake up and start moving and the heart rate start getting more variable, that's okay. That's okay, yeah. But, um, you know, a flat strip, I mean, a really, truly flat strip, even during sleep with a normal fetus, you're going to see just a little bit. But, okay. But you're, but you're right. And the other thing that you bring up is these tests can be a little subjective, and so they're not perfect. Right. And um, even though we do this stuff with fetal heart rate monitoring, it really does convey a limited benefit. So prospective studies will show a, a decreased one-minute APGAR scores, um, Below uh, below four and decrease neonatal seizures with fetal heart rate monitoring, but the thinking is that the damage is is probably already done prior to the onset of labor. So, if you've got a woman who's got really bad fetal heart rate monitoring strips, it's it's probably likely that whatever damage she has to the fetus was done weeks, if not months ago. Okay. So I want to back up a sec to the early variable and late D cells because there's uh, one way I was taught to remember this that I think is just a useful kind of way to keep it straight is if you think about how the baby comes out, the first part of the baby to come out is the head. And so early D cells can be just from some compression of the head. 
And then the next thing that comes out is the cord, and variable D cells are from, as you said, cord compression. And then the last thing that comes out is the placenta, so late D cells can be from placental malperfusion. And so that's one way to keep those three straight. You know, that's a great mnemonic. Uh, Thank you for sharing that with us. Absolutely. So then, you know, I remember when my wife was pregnant, she would go in for these uh, non-stress tests, and I always was confused. Yes. What, what, why do they call it a non-stress test? Okay, so non-stress, thank you for bringing that up. A non-stress test is a test that you put the, the fetus on the monitor and you just watch it. And so you record the fetal heart rate for about 30, 40 minutes, and you look for baseline fetal heart rate, you look at, for the fetal heart rate variability, you look for the presence of accelerations, you want to see periodic or episodic decelerations as well, and you're looking at the changes of fetal heart rate patterns over time. And so this is a test that doesn't do anything to the fetus other than just watch. And so it's non-stress because you're not stressing the fetus, you're just watching. Correct. In contrast, the contraction stress test is that you want to induce contractions either physiologically or pharmacology, and you want to monitor the fetal response. And so how do you do this physiologically? Well, uh, quite frankly, you have the, the patient rub her own nipples to stimulate release of oxytocin. And just like when she's going to breastfeed, stimulation of the nipples will, uh, will allow a letdown of the milk. Uh, stimulation of the nipples will also uh, release the oxytocin, which can result in contractions. And if that, the physiologic stimuli doesn't do it, then you can administer uh, titrated oxytocin. And what you really want is you want a minimum of three contractions within 10 minutes to complete the test. A negative test is no decelerations with contractions, and a positive test is repetitive, late, or severe variable decelerations. And when would you do that test, Mike? This, this kind of test you would do if you're worried about fetal well-being. So if you put the fetus on the monitor and you see kind of a flat strip, you might want to do a, a contraction stress test if you're not getting the results from the non-stress test. Okay. Now, I will say my, my experience was that when my wife went in for the non-stress test, if they didn't see the uh, variability and the accelerations that they wanted to see, the first thing they would do is give her some sugar. So they'd give her some apple juice or uh, a piece of chocolate or something like that and see if that would kind of wake the baby up. And if that didn't work, they had this buzzer that they would kind of put on her uh, abdomen and it would buzz. Uh, the sound waves would kind of buzz the baby and wake it up. And we never got past that point. That always worked. But I will <laughs> tell you that uh, the buzzer to me sounded exactly like the buzzer from the the game taboo and so when we were ever in the last weeks when uh when my wife if she didn't feel as many kicks as she sort of normally did i actually would go and get the taboo buzzer and put it on her abdomen and buzz and that actually did the same thing i'm not recommending that that's not a medical recommendation but that is what we did okay that's very interesting um yeah i've never had to go through that with my wife but that that's something that i would probably do as well off-label use of, of taboo um and then the last the last test is the biophysical profile and this is a sonographic scoring system performed over a 30 40 minute period designed to assess fetal well-being so you're looking at things like fetal breathing movements gross body movements fetal tone you're looking at the qualitative amniotic fluid volume and um that's pretty much it all right, and that gives you a score out of 10, is that right, or 20? 
Yeah. Well, the other thing is uh, the reactive non-stress test. And so, uh, so if you're looking at the scores, uh, there's it gives you a score out of ten, and it's uh, normal is two points, abnormal is zero points, and it's subjective if you want to give them one point. And so, for non for the non-stress test, reactive field heart rate, you want to see at least two two accelerations in twenty minutes. For the field breathing movements, you want to see at least one episode of more than 30 or more than 20 in uh, 30 minutes. I'm sorry, 30 to 20 breaths per minute in 30 minutes. For the fetal activity or gross body movements, you want to see at least three or two movements in the torso or limbs. For the field muscle tone, you want to see at least one episode of active bending and straightening of the limb or trunk. And for the uh, qualitative part, you want to see at least one vertical pocket greater than two centimeters or more in the vertical axis. That's a that's an ultrasound term that I don't do on a regular basis. All right. So those are the five components of the biophysical profile worth that's two points each, uh, up to two points each. So 10 would be a perfect score. Correct. Great. All right. Anything else that we didn't cover? Um, no, there's, there's one more part, antiparum therapy we can get through real quick. Yeah, let's do it. So antiparum therapy, you have antenatal corticosteroids. These are given to, given to prevent respiratory distress syndrome in preterm infants. What, how it works is to increase pulmonary surfactant by inducing type 2 pneumocytes in the lung. It induces cellular differentiation at the expense of growth. The uh, vascular GI and uh, I'm sorry, the vascular and GI endothelial cells are induced too. And the result is that we have less intraventricular hemorrhage and necrotizing enterocolitis with antenatal steroids. And the drugs that we typically give are either betamethasone or dexamethasone. So this is uh, an important therapy for uh, the preterm babies. A lot of times, We'll try to hold off delivery for a day or two to get these steroids on board and let them work. Uh, and finally, an emerging field is fetal surgery. Yeah. And so it's possible to repair potentially life-threatening malformations that are understood by ultrasound prior to delivery. And uh, not surprisingly, fetuses with normal karyotypes will do better than fetuses with abnormal karyotypes. The best time to operate is prior to viability. And so if, if you can catch this before 24 weeks, it's better to do field surgery before that. And ultimately, the patient has to understand the risks and benefits. And this is, there's not a whole lot of great data on these field surgeries. And so it really has to be a multidisciplinary decision that the, the patient makes with her team. Yeah, so it's quite fascinating surgery, uh, but as you said, definite risks uh, most most profoundly, of course, being loss of the of the pregnancy. And so, if you're pre if you're pre um, uh, viability, then you would, of course, just lose the baby. If you're post viability, then you often will uh, go ahead and deliver the baby uh, and hope for the best. That's correct. 
All right. And steroids, again, that you mentioned, so huge, huge point um, for a, a woman in preterm labor uh, should get betamethasone uh, to uh, improve the outcomes, both from a pulmonary, GI, and neuro standpoint uh, with the baby. And I believe they try to get 48 hours of steroids. Often, in fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the tocolytic therapy is not that effective in terms of stopping labor completely, but if it can slow it down long enough to get the steroids in over 48 hours, then that can make a big difference. Absolutely. All right. Mike, any last words? No, I think I think we covered it. Uh, thank you for having me again. Thanks for coming on. We'll do it again soon. Great. All right. That's it for today. Remember, you can go to the website, ACRAC.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments on this or any of the episodes. For this specific episode, let us know. Did we miss anything important when it comes to obstetric pharmacology and fetal assessment? What do you keep in mind? How do you use these medications? Everybody can learn from seeing your comments on the website. Also, you can join our mailing list in the upper right-hand corner of the website, where you'll get notifications every time there's a new episode, as well as anything else I might send around. If you are enjoying the show and you haven't already, please take a moment and consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can, of course, leave a comment on the episodes. I see all of those and try to respond to all of them. And you can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. All right. That's it. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Mike Hofkamp, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.